1: More info now.
0: Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito, and I'm here to introduce you to my new series, Parish. My character, Grey Parish, was a getaway driver. I'm retired from a life you know that. He's in a world over his head. Tell me about this driver job. And he's asked to start to figure things out. I did what you told me to. He will try to do what's right and seek Justice Parish,
2: all new Sundays at nine on AMC and stream on AMC Plus.
3: From Luminary, this is British Villains.
4: The trial was in April '64. In in the summer of '64, um, Charlie Wilson was in Winston Green Prison.
3: Charlie Wilson was the first of the great train robbers to escape
4: he would be given 30 years in a high-security wing. Um, and um, in the middle of the night, some of his mates came along um, with some keys, which clearly they'd got copies made through some contact they'd had in the prison service. They let themselves into the wing of Winston Green Prison. They climbed over a wall, opened Charlie's cell, and they walked out and off into the night. So, I mean, that was, again, like something out of a film. I mean, people just thought, what the hell? You know, uh, how can
3: that happen? Well, what would you do if you had the option to either stay in prison for 30 years or hop over the wall and take your chances on the outside? The robbery was just the beginning, and the ever-changing story with this expanding cast of characters would keep Britain riveted for decades. I'm William Green, and this is British Villains.
5: The story emerged about how they got out of the country.
6: What we've we got to do, we've got to get you to Germany. He was on the run for the next 30 years. His story's about plastic surgery. We didn't know about
5: plastic surgery then.
2: He said, it's killing me, the pain. Uh, about 20 coppers came pushing in and bursting and running up the doors. Who the hell is my dad? What has he done?
3: Charlie Wilson may have been the first but he would definitely not be the last it was escape or rotten prison for 25 or 30 years like i said in the last episode running is always the first option for any villain in
4: trouble there's no way that anybody's going to sort of necessarily sit there for 30 years and not think about escaping i suppose um i certainly would and so um that obviously then just gave another kind of huge sort of catapult to this extraordinary story of the great train robbery and the great train robbers and how remarkable they were. And, yeah, the springing of uh, Charlie Wilson just literally after months of being convicted of this 30 years was an absolutely extraordinary thing. And, um, yeah, it kind of, it, it again, catapulted it onto another level of people going, wow, yeah, what's going to happen next sort of
7: thing. This story was not going to go away. Well, you've got to, well, to realise this is, in those days, uh, you could drive alongside the prison wall. Here's Robert Robinson again, formerly of The Yard. I mean, I used to... Uh, Wormwood Scrubs. Uh, I was caught in a nurse from a hospital opposite Wormwood Scrubs. I used to lean my motorbike and leave it, leave it unattended against the prison wall. And there was a famous case where a spy... Uh, Russian spy Blake got out of Wormwood Scrubs, and that was the case. And it was all about the same time. You could drive against the wall, and now you can't get near a prison wall. And it's all these things happen, don't they? But it needs something like that to make people realise that it, it is easy, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's difficult,
4: if not impossible, really, to to know exactly how with the char- escape of Charlie Wilson, how his associates who sprang him could possibly have course a set of keys that allowed them to literally go in through the outside entrance of this prison, navigate their way through a series of locked doors to Charlie Wilson's cell and open it with a set of keys. I mean, clearly, somebody in the prison authorities s- did a deal with them. But who that was, I mean, he's not going to own up to it, but... it was an extraordinary sort of turn of events, really.
3: And of course, once one of them had gone, it was just a question of who's going to be next.
4: A year after that, which is not that much longer, um, Ronnie Biggs, who was in Wandsworth Prison, was out on exercise three o'clock in the afternoon. A couple of mates drew up in a furniture van next to the wall, chuck, chuck a rope ladder over.
3: Next up, Ronnie Biggs, the old parking next to a prison
6: wall trick again now this was planned from prison he planned it or his men planned it they'd have a furniture lorry huge furniture lorry with say a lift inside with no roof bigsy climbed over the wall with another prisoner jumped onto the top of the van the lift went down or this, all the mattresses went down got out and went in drove in some cars and drove away. So the p- press again, I mean, up, or prisoners will escape as soon as you lock them up.
4: Strangely, his escape out of Wandsworth and his subsequent antics on the run for the next 30 years ending up in Brazil doing videos with the Sex Pistols, etc.
3: Look, the story of Ronnie Biggs is definitely weird. He loved the attention and he courted the press from his distant locations. He remains the most well-known face of the robbery, although his part in it was very minor. From the moment he got to Brazil and was able to avoid capture, he was determined to enjoy the next 30 years in the spotlight of the tabloids.
4: was one of the things which kept the story alive and bubbling along and this idea that, you know, it was all good, clean entertainment, really, and he was a sort of cheeky chappy, um, still cooking a snoo at the uh, British establishment. Um, So... In, in some ways, yeah, the smallest player in the thing was possibly uh, most responsible for keeping the story alive and uh, providing people with a, a sort of kind of a bit of a smile occasionally.
5: And gradually, the certain of the criminals emerged as being personalities almost. You almost felt that you knew them. Um, you know, the the, the kind of happy go lucky jat le biggs and the rather faultf- uh, thoughtful... Um, Seemingly starstruck and, and articulate jazz love in uh, Bruce Reynolds, and then when the story emerged about how they got out of the country, stories about plastic surgery. We didn't know about plastic surgery then. Yeah, you know, it's not commonplace part of celebrity culture as it is now. Then it was no, one I would never heard of it. It was like some, it was like science fiction. It was like science
3: fiction, right? Which unfortunately brings us to Buster Edwards. As I've said before. Buster was one of my dad's oldest friends and one of the few villains still on the lam after the big trial. He was bouncing from safe house to safe house. In fact, at one point, he hid out in a house my dad rented for him. But all this running was exhausting. So Buster makes the decision to get himself and his family out of England. The problem is, his face is everywhere. So he decides to change it. I mean, change his actual face.
6: He said, um, they've got my fingerprints. We found out his fingerprints were found on a a wrapper of a bunch of notes. They've got my description. He said, um, I'll have some plastic surgery. But no one knew where to get plastic surgery back then. And the
3: few doctors who did, well, they were just butchers. It was the stuff of horror shows. Now, things start to get really nutty at this point. I believe most of it. But like everything to do with the train. Who the fuck knows? Anyway, here's my dad's version.
6: Through certain people, we got talking to someone, and there's this woman. She was like a countess German. Who worked for a guy called Otto Scorsese. He was and the leader of the SAS, um not the SAS, the Germans. So what are they called?
3: I'm pretty sure he means the SS.
6: SS. He rescued Mussolini from a prison camp that we had captured him. He was the Italian. So he was well known. He was the idol of Hitler. And she, after the war, of she worked for this. He knew someone or she knew someone to have the plastic surgery done. So I said, OK, now, what have we got to do? We've got to get you to... Germany to have this done so we got him to Germany he went to Bavaria when he got there it was agreed but at the last moment the wife of the surgeon who owned the operating refused to have it done because they said this man's a member of the party the Nazi party you know she said no so I said well we know someone else who might do it so he had it done by somebody else it's at this
3: point in the story that my dad goes over to Germany to see Buster.
6: As soon as I saw him, I said, Buster, you look like Frankenstein. He really did. He looked like a Frankenstein monster. He says, that, I said, Buster, you got to have it done again. He, he said, it's killing me, the pain. I said, well, oh, you'd get nicked because you're looking like that. So he had to go for all that again, and it cost him money again. So eventually... After a few weeks on mums, I said, look, stay in a hotel after you come back and add more cosmetics.
3: Let's fast forward a bit. Eventually, with my dad's help, Buster and his family leave Europe and get to Mexico, where they meet up with Bruce Reynolds, who's still hiding out. Bruce is selling cigarettes and lighters, doing a bit of this and a bit of that. Charlie Wilson, fresh out of prison, also turns up for a visit.
6: Charlie was a playboy. They're staying in a hotel there and chatting up all the hostesses, air hostess, stay for a few days on their flight.
3: Being on the run is expensive. Buster's running out of money, Bruce is running out of money. Everyone is running out of money. How is that possible? Well, Truth be told, for the majority of the crew, the robbery mm, didn't end up being as profitable as they had hoped. The bottom line? Avoiding capture has a hefty price tag. After the robbery, the stolen money kept changing hands. People had to be paid off. There were endless safe houses that had to be paid for. And hiding money ain't cheap. It comes with a price. Elaborate escapes from prison. The logistics of being on the run were pricey. We've also discussed honour amongst thieves. Well, that went out the window. In many cases, the cash was just pilfered, stolen. Usually, this was while another villain was watching it for you, while it was buried in his garden
2: or sealed up in his wall. This is another thing most people aren't aware of. Here's Nick Reynolds again, Bruce Reynolds's son. A huge amount of uh, of the train robbers, they had all their money nicked off in one way or another. Um, and, it, and it's very expensive passports, getting people to look after you so my dad had gone through a fortune um, he had a bit left and some he'd buried in, uh, in Mexico for a rainy day unfortunately there's a block of flats on top of it now otherwise I'd have gone out there with a shovel
3: <laughs> Buster decides that the Mexican vacation is over for him and his family they're done running
6: so he said to me, I'm coming back. He said, can you see, Frank, if there's any deals to be done?
3: By this time, 1966, two years after the robbery, most of the crew were doing time in prison. But the flying squad wasn't letting up. Bruce Reynolds, Ronnie Biggs, Buster Edwards, Charlie Wilson, all of them were still at large somewhere in the world and the police were determined to capture them. In Buster's case, with the help of my dad, they tried to negotiate a deal with the police. Before Buster leaves Mexico, my dad reaches out to some connections he has in the police force. He asks them if there's a way to help Buster return and reduce his sentence. They say, maybe, if he gives them some of the stolen money.
6: The arrangement is, I'll put the money... My mum lived in the council flats, and four floors up. In the side road, there was a phone box which I could see from my mum's there. I'm going to put 70 grand, 77 grand in the phone box, in two sacks, in that phone box.
3: Remember, that's over a million dollars in today's money. So my dad is going to leave one million dollars in a phone booth with the hope that maybe, just maybe, Buster might get a lighter sentence.
6: I took it down in my car. because I sat in my car and... I well, five minutes to go, it's very desolate. Put it in the box and sat in the car and watched. And I saw the police car come and I just drove off. So they got it. When they counted it, there was seven grand
3: missing. He's saying that the police who picked up the money had a little tickle themselves. Around $150,000 in today's money.
6: That's some tickle. But he said £70,000 found in the room. They'd nicked seven grand, that mm.
3: But the story takes another turn when my dad attempts to discuss the terms of the deal.
6: Can we have a deal with Buster? He said, we can't because there's another story now.
3: The other story that he's talking about is that it had come to the attention of the head of the flying squad, Tommy Butler, that every time he left town, another deal was being made with a villain. And he had had enough of this. Buster's deal was off the table, along with the bride money. But Frank Williams may well have been a bank copper, but he was still a man of his word. So later, he did come through and help to reduce Buster's sentence by a few years. Buster was out of money and out of options. So in September 1966, he turned himself in. Along with the already convicted robbers, there isn't any direct evidence to connect Buster to the crime scene. Only a boatload of circumstantial evidence. He ends up getting 12 years for conspiracy and 15 for robbery. By January 1968, Charlie Wilson has left Mexico and relocated to Canada. One morning, he opens his door and there's Tommy Butler accompanied with about 50 Canadian Mounties. So that's Charlie, busted for the second time. He returns to England to serve out his sentence. For Ronnie Biggs, life was different. He'd be a fugitive for another 30 years, teasing the tabloid press, pressing the buttons of Scotland Yard and hanging out with the Sex Pistols. He'd reach celebrity status while continuing to be an internationally wanted fugitive. Then, in 1974, he was actually briefly arrested by Chief Superintendent Jack Slipper, who'd flown over to Brazil just to do the honours. But true to his character, Biggs managed to argue his way out of extradition because he just had a son by his Brazilian girlfriend. But he was just avoiding the inevitable. The police would continue to relentlessly pursue his capture, and he knew that he'd never be truly free. At age 70, he became extremely ill, so decided to give himself up and return to Britain. With 28 years left on his sentence, Biggs died in prison a few days before his 80th birthday. I think it's true to say that good old Biggsy became a kind of bizarre national treasure in England. And finally, where's Bruce Reynolds, the master ringleader of all this? Tell me about this, I want you to go to Torquay. This is Robert Robinson again former Flying Squad officer. And Torquay, that's a little English
7: seaside town. But you're to go as a Fraud Squad officer, not the Flying Squad, because we think Reynolds is living in Torquay, and if he gets the word that a Flying Squad is in Torquay, he'll go. So you're not to show out to the local police. And he gave me a docket which was from the Fraud Squad. Well, Tommy Butler, in the years, he'd been chasing Reynolds and Wilson and, and the others he had found out the five false passports that Reynolds had used in the five years. He was on the trot, or to say, to say to the Americans, on the run. But we say on the trot. Uh, so I went down there as a fraud squad officer and was assigned with a local detective constable who never knew I was from the flying squad, but did later and we became great friends. And we went round to the estate agents saying that, you're going to be subjected to this fraud. And we had the five names, and through that inquiry, we found the address where Reynolds was living. He'd rented in Torquay. And then we came back to London, and uh, Mr Butler, or Tommy Butler, um, used facilities we have in the police, and eventually he found out that Reynolds was going back to Torquay at about one in the morning. And so we all piled in our cars when we got together and Tommy Butler got the uniform from Torquay to knock on the door and to say that the car on the drive involved in an accident and Reynolds was there. Here's how Nick remembers it, being hunted down by the grey
2: fox, Tommy Butler. He lay in wait and uh, that was one morning, the doorbell went, my dad shouted out, Son, can you get that? And open the doors like a scene from the Keystone Cops. Uh, about twenty coppers came pushing in and bursting and running up the doors. And uh, and funnily enough, at, at that time, up until that moment, I knew we were kind of running from something because I'd had multiple passports, changing my name from different country to place and stuff. But given a different backstory, if I should, if we should get separated, um, never questioned it. Never picked up any fear um, I never got the sense that my mum and dad were scared but I knew we were moving around and there was no kind of real reason my dad seemed to be living a different life to everybody else so I suppose I thought um as you do um that he was a spy you know sort of like 007 or something
3: so so talk about that a bit though the the sort of rules that you, you know, because you're a young kid, right? And you you didn't know your dad, obviously, at the time, had done the train. Yeah, I didn't know. I
2: didn't, I didn't, even when he got nicked, I didn't know. When the, police came, when the police took him away, I thought it was like a scene from John Lee Carey's Aspire came in from the cold, and I thought they'd they, they come to rescue him, and now we don't have to keep moving around. Every time I make friends, we have to go somewhere.
3: Nick says that the morning Butler first walked up to his dad, he said, Hello, Bruce. It's been a long time. His reply was classic Bruce Reynolds. He said, Sailor V. For little Nick, he just thought that maybe he could finally stop bouncing around and make some proper mates.
2: So when I saw it, I thought, this is great. And I saw my mum who was in floods of tears, and I thought, "Mm, maybe this isn't so good, you know. (laughs) And that's when my dad said, by the way, daddy's been a naughty boy and um, he's got to go away for a long time, you know. And it was only afterwards you know me seeing the newspapers and stuff like that that it, it, it dawned on me kind of what he'd done and that basically he was uh you know a bad person apparently
3: this is where i really relate to nick when you're a child of a villain there's so much you don't know so much information that is hidden from you like you have one idea of who your dad is The idea he wants you to have. And then it turns out he's been leading this whole other life. A life you're not part of. A life he doesn't ever want you to be part of. But that other life he's been living, it's the kind of life that the rest of society judges harshly. And rightly so. But that's still your dad. And you love and look up to your dad. It's confusing when you're a kid. It still is. Even at my age.
8: Mother's Day is coming and mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint.
2: And it really didn't dawn on me um, that he could have been a bad guy because, you know, we we were living the life with top respectable people, and uh, I'd never seen him angry. I'd never seen him abusive. I've never seen him act in any way that you would associate with kind of criminal criminality, if you like, or villains, shall we say? You know, he was on appearances uh, a loving uh, family man, and, and you know, and that's really what that's what he was. Uh, It was only when I first went to visit him in prison that it dawned on me that, you know, who the hell is my dad? Because it must have taken half an hour to go through all the different doors and the long passageways. And I remember the sound of the screws with the Blakeys on his heels tap, tap, tap down the concrete passageways, the big bunch of keys clanging up through one door, clunk, clunk, in you go, clunk, clunk, shut that one. And it was like we were going in an ever-decreasing spiral like a maze, and it took half an hour until finally we were in the centre of a maze and it was a glass cube and my dad was sat in the glass cube and I just, for me, it was just like, you know, obviously Hannibal the film wasn't out then, but as a young kid suddenly seeing this it was like, who the hell is my dad?
3: Once again, I'd like to remind you of how we started this journey, with this line, ask any proper villain and here tell you, every story has three sides. His side Your side and the truth. There's so many fucking versions of this robbery that, and I'm sure like you said, you know, I've I've been out places and someone's gone to me, oh yeah, his dad was on the train. And I'm like, oh, who's, or his dad was, drove the craze or his dad worked with Fred. And I'm like, who is that? And they're like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, you know, I, I grew up, my dad, you know, I know the names: Alfie, Gerard, Cordroy, yeah. Checkers, Bruce, Buster. Yeah, all, all these names that, and a lot of them I knew growing up, and I had met. And I, I it, what, why do you think that is? What do you think that is? That there's sort of a well storytellers, right?
2: Well, well, yeah, well, yeah, but it's the type of people telling the story, isn't it? Because generally, these are all kind of villains who, of the time, it was the biggest job of the time. They'd love to have been part of it. So if they were at it in their day, of course they're going to say as a point of reference, they had something to do with it. I mean, the amount of people I've met over the years um, that claim to have been in a certain prison with my dad, you know, and then when I popped round my dad's place, I saw so-and-so, he go, who? <laughs> Never heard of him. Right, right. And uh, I, I was in the Navy seven and a half years, and so I was doing a lot of travelling. I remember there was one time I was in Portugal, and um, a couple of guys came back on board and said they'd been in a bar you know um, and the guy that running it was one of the train robbers one of the three that got away so of course I went down there I've never seen him in my life right. you know and he was trading and when I was down the Falklands War, the locals told me there was a guy running around who used to run around naked except for a woolly jumper with the sheep and he was supposed to be one of the great train robbers who'd escaped which is great
3: <laughs> it's true to say that like Nick I've heard many sides to this story, so many times that it's almost become fiction. But I think I'm ready to hear the uncorrupted truth. Next episode, we'll get down to brass tacks and talk to my dad about the day the coppers came knocking at his door.
6: I said, can I leave it here because I don't want my wife finding out about all my business. He said, all right.
5: You know, that some people do, do make that money
6: and, and do get away with it, uh, but not all of them do. Knocked the gate, went in, and Heather said, all cars just pulled in the drive. I said, you see
3: that man over there? He's not very nice. From Luminary, British Villains is a production of The Cut, Ninth Planet Audio, and Western Sound. Executive producers are William Green, Aaron Ginsberg, Jimmy Miller, Hans Sarni, and Ben Adair. The show was written by Rosecrans Baldwin and Vanessa Sadler. Nick Reynolds and Edward Rose composed the theme. Music by Michael Cruz. Producers include Christina Moore, Annette Runhell, and Stephanie Aguilar. The show was sound designed and engineered by Dan Leone. Up next, episode 10, Life After the Train.
1: More info now.